Uh, I wanted to apologize to you guys ahead of time as I did in the first service for my voice. Uh, it's not terrible, but it's not great. I've been at the return training for the summer or the leadership project for Camp Harris Charleston in Greenville the last four days or so, and they play Christian hip-hop music really loud uh, the whole time. And they're a very, very energetic crew. And uh, in order to have conversations, you have to speak over the Christian hip-hop, which is really good music, good theology and the whole thing. But my larynx couldn't handle it, and here we are. Uh, I'd also like to apologize on behalf of my voice that I don't talk like Jim McVicker. Um, he, you know, he's Scottish. And Scottish people can draw you to Jesus in a way that Americans can't, I guess, uh, just by sheer inflection. And, and so I, I just, over the week, it's like I was practicing, trying to figure out what I wanted to talk like Jim the whole time. Turn to verse 30. Look at the glory of Christ in verse 31. And um, thanks to, And I figured maybe it would help you, but then it would feel disingenuous for me to preach the whole sermon in Scottish accent. So uh, I'm just going to do Southern American uh, with you. And I think at this point I have a tinge of Minnesotan. So maybe it's closer to neutral. I don't know how y'all feel about Minnesotan accents, or as you call it, Michigan. Uh, a number of you have said now that basically in your minds, Michigan and Minnesota are the same place. They're really, really not. Uh, they're both close to Canada, but they're both very much states in these United States. So anyway... Uh, this is, this is a new day for us. Two years and four days ago, I stood here, and right here, and was preaching a sermon to you, and I was full of thankfulness in my heart for the church that raised me in the fear and grace of Jesus Christ. I love this church, and I've been very, very thankful. I was thankful for this church that sent me off into the frozen tundra and has supported me through prayer and financial support for a long time. And my family, Lisa and I have now been married for nine years, and we have three kids, Annie, Lucy, and Eli, as Dean just said, and uh, two months ago, and two years, four days ago, and two months ago, really, we had no intention of coming back here. Uh, we loved it in, in the Twin Cities, and we loved our church. We loved our uh, Bethlehem Baptist. We loved the campuses that we were on. We loved our staff team. But the Lord had other plans, and now we are thrilled to be back here. We're excited to be with the campus outreach staff team, reaching college students here in, in Charleston, and hopefully, mobi hopefully mobilizing them out into the greater Charleston area, into South Carolina, into the United States, and into the nations. Um, but I wanted to just tell you just very briefly why we came back. And not, it, it, we could sit down for two hours over candy and, and talk about this. I don't drink coffee. Uh, and we could talk about this, but I just want to give you kind of an ultimate reason we came back. I, I, I met a lady, I saw a lady, I was picking up boiled peanuts from the peanut dude the other day. If you've not had boiled peanuts from the peanut dude, in my opinion, his Cajun recipe is the best that I've tasted. Uh, but as, when I was picking up peanuts from the peanut dude, I saw a lady that I know. I grew up with her children, and uh, she doesn't go to this church. Uh, and I love her dearly, but don't worry. She said, I knew you'd come home. I knew you'd come home. I thought it would be 10 years ago, but I knew you'd come home. And I thought about that for a little while because it, there was something about that that said there, there's been this magnetism drawing me back to east of the Cooper. And this is hard to say because this feels like home. This feels like home to me. All right, This is where I grew up. It feels like home. I love my home church. But our family has a creed. We have eight tenets, little phrases that our kids can memorize. 
like water off a duck's back and things that somehow reflect biblical principles in order that they might understand a Christian worldview with some pretty pithy little principles. And the eighth tenet in the creed is you are not home yet, or we are not home yet. And what we believe is that we have this tiny little vapor's breath of a life. And Minnesota was not our home, and South Carolina is not our home. We will spend 99.99999 repeating percent of our existence with Christ in glory, and that's our home. That's our home. This is not your home, believer. And so, when we decided to come back, we didn't decide to come back because the climate was better, and it's better. Uh, A lot better. It's a perk. All right? Uh, we didn't decide to come back because our neighborhood would be a little safer. It is. That's nice. That's great. That's not why we came back. We didn't even come back because we love this church, ultimately. But we do. We love this church. Or even the Campus Outreach staff team. And we love them. I've been getting to know them over the last couple months or so. I love them. They're great. But we came back for this reason. Don't make me cry. Uh, we told our kids... We sat down with our kids a couple months ago with our best friends who've worked with us and have kids the same age, and we handed out sheep, little stuffed sheep, and talked about how the Lord was our shepherd, and no matter where we go, he would lead us beside still waters. And then we told them this. I sat on the couch and I told them this. I said, Jesus says in John 10 that I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And so we're going to go find some sheep that are not of this fold, that they might come also. And so when we celebrate true home, it's with people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so you might ask, well, why would you come back to South Carolina if you got sent out to a place where there's maybe more people to reach like that? And I would say because it's complicated, but it seems like the most strategic use of this little vapor's breath of a life for me, for Lisa, for our kids, would be to be here to see laborers, that's our vision statement, campus outreach, built up on the campus that they would go. And I don't just say them I say you too we don't circle the wagons here we don't get magnetized home we go we go to the nations and so after this little season of being here it may be that I go to the grave and Lisa does too and our kids do too in Mount Pleasant South Carolina but it may be that in five or seven years we're in the Sudan because we're not home yet we're not home yet and so I'd love to see some of you scatter too so we could spend 99.999% of our existence not only together with somebody from the Sudan glorifying Jesus so let me pray and then I'll preach the actual sermon Father I know my heart even as I say that I know that moment by moment my decisions do not always align with that I'm prone to wander I feel it I'm prone to leave the God that I love and I know all of my brothers and sisters in here are too so we ask by your spirit that you would increase our faith You would help us not to conform to the pattern of this world, be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we'd be able to test and approve your good and pleasing and perfect will for our lives. Pray that you would help me this morning to speak your words and not mine, that we might feel the deep, deep rest and safety and glory of your grace. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The title of the sermon today, if you want a title, you like titles, is Creating a Culture of Candor. And I realized as I made that title, or a little after I made that title, that I might have sacrificed a little too much on the altar of alliteration, um, because candor is not a word, I wanted three C words, and candor is not a word that we use all that often in our vernacular. 
Um, if you've ever seen the Divergent movies or read the Divergent books, which might only be a few of you, it's kind of like preteen, preteen girl books, but I've read them. And, uh, and, you know, the movies came out. Candor is one of the factions. And basically, what candor means is speaking freely. It's the, the quality of speaking freely, of saying how you really feel, who you really are, what you really think, as opposed to concealing that. And my aim today is to help us, or ask the Lord to help us, move toward more toward a culture of candor. We're somewhere on that path. Everybody's somewhere on that path, being able to express who you are, what you think, what you actually feel. But I would argue that all of us want it really badly. Okay? So if you ask why, it may be that you say, well, why do you want that? Because maybe you grew up in the southeast of the United States. It's really no different in Minnesota. But there is a high cultural value on propriety and presentability and maybe even privacy. If you want three Ps. Uh, propriety, presentability, and privacy to say, I'm not going to really show you who I am because I need to be presentable. I need to be prim and proper. And I would argue to you that what you really want is a culture of candor for two reasons. It's really positive and negative, two sides of the same coin. Reason number one, we want desperately to be known. God put a good desire in our hearts, a good desire in our hearts to be known, ultimately by him, but also by one another. And I believe when we get to the aforementioned glory, to heaven, we will know one another through and through. And it will be wonderful. It says in 1 Corinthians 13 that we will know fully just as we have been fully known. And we will do this dance of knowing and being known, loving and being loved. But it is a deep desire of the human heart. The, the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, O Lord, glorying in this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And the psalmist glories in that reality that, that the Lord would know me all the way. We desire deeply to be known through and through and then loved as we are, as we want. Why we would want to create a culture of candor. And the negative side of that, why we would want a culture of candor would be because it's bondage to hide. It's bondage to hide, to perform for one another, to do a little song and dance all the time, always fearing that someone might find out something about us that we don't want to be found out. It's bondage to be exposed, or, or to, not, to, to have to hide so we wouldn't be exposed in our weakness. C.S. Lewis says it like this in uh, Mere Christianity. He says about God, he's trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible. Trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we've all got ourselves up and are strutting about like the little idiots we are. I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking the fancy dress off. Getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing. To get even near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. It's one of my favorite quotes I've ever read. Because I so resonate with that. To get even near it for a moment. To take off the fancy get up that I have where I'm trying to posture myself presentably. Would be a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Such freedom there. So I think, I think we could all agree that what we want is a culture of candor. The safety to speak, to speak freely. To show what you are, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. So the next question would be what steps do we take to get there? How are you going to move toward a culture of candor? And I'm going to take kind of a roundabout means to get there, uh, but we'll get there. 
I just think it might be helpful to establish a value system beforehand, so we're going to do that. Two years and four days ago, when I was standing here, uh, I asked a question that was the question around which the entire sermon revolved as we looked at John chapter 3 and John the Baptist's life and relationship to Jesus. And the question was this, is the primary aim of your life or your day or your moment to be impressive to people, to God, or to be impressed by people, by God? Is the primary aim of your life to be admired by people, by God, or to be an admirer of people and of God? And that was such an important question. I believe that that question over and again throughout your day is the linchpin. It's the crossroads. You go there again and one path is life and one path is death. The path of being impressed, being an admirer specifically of God is life. The path of trying to impress people is death. I preach the whole sermon over again right now. I think it's that important. To be like John the Baptist who said, I have to decrease. Jesus got to increase. I love it when I hear the bridegroom's voice. I preach it again. I love that. But in it, so let me just, I'll, I'll give you one quote, and then we'll move. It's a Lewis quote again. I like C.S. Lewis. He says things pretty. And uh, he said, to love and admire anything out your, outside yourself is to take one step away from utter spiritual ruin. Though we will not be well so long as we love and admire anything as much as we love and admire God. It's just boom. You want to step away from utter spiritual ruin? Admire something other than yourself. You want to go all the way? Admire God. So the next question, if, if, we are, if we have all come to the conclusion, at least we did two years and four days ago, and I'm sure all of you remember that sermon perfectly, we come to the conclusion that the, the point of our lives ought to be to be impressed, to be admirers, not to make ourselves impressive to everybody. Then you have to ask the next question, which is, with what ought we to be impressed? What should we be impressed with? Um, and so what I would like to do is take that question and establish what I believe to be something like God's value system moving from the fringes of what impresses him or what he values about you deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into his deep heart. If you don't make it all the way into his deep heart, I don't believe that we can establish a culture of candor. And that's why we're going where we're going. But as I describe to you incrementally in levels what I believe to be God's, his value system, what he's impressed with as he's shown us in the Bible, uh, I want you to juxtapose or put alongside of it your own personal value system. Think about what are the things that I'm actually impressed with? What are the things that I actually value in people? And how does it line up with God's? Is it inverted? Is it parallel? Does it work really well? How, where, where do my values fit with God's? Where am I conformed to the pattern of the world and where am I transformed by the renewing of my mind and in line with God's will. So, uh, what do we value about others? What are the unspoken rules here? And what are God's rules? And I'm going to walk through what I think to be God's rules, his, his value system. Level one, this is the surface, okay? And we're, uh, as we go through each level, by the way, I'm going to, uh, the picture I'll use is that of an introduction, and I'll explain it as I go, an introduction of a friend. We'll call him Benjamin, Okay. Uh, on the surface, I would say God is impressed with on some level, and we ought to be impressed with on some level, external talents and accomplishments, worldly accomplishments. And I don't mean worldly like in some sort of fleshly or carnal sense. I mean accomplishments like um, graduating with honors, right? Or talents like being able to play the flute or... or um, I don't know, getting a full ride to, to Vanderbilt University because 
you can understand chemistry well. Okay? And I would say, people are amazing. God made people to be amazing. And so when people are able to accomplish things like that, when people can jump over hurdles, or when they can hit a tennis ball. I love Roger Federer. I talked about him in the first service. I love Roger Federer. He's my favorite athlete probably ever. And I realize he's Swiss, and maybe that's unpatriotic, but he's unbelievable. He, he's, they call him the maestro, the way that he basically conducts a symphony on the court, or if you want to transfer in, you know, art milieus, you'd say he's kind of a ballerina on the court, he, or a ballet dancer, not a woman. But he he, the way he hits the tennis ball and uses his body is beautiful. His coordination is beautiful to me. The way people use their minds to articulate certain things can be really beautiful. So people are amazing, and I believe that, but I would call this the surface. The surface, which means I don't see much in the Bible about anything about athletic achievement or academic achievement or physical appearance or most talents at all. Spiritual gifting to an extent. See that in 1 Corinthians 12 before Paul shows us a more excellent way. But as I look through the Bible, this is what I see. Athletic achievement, for example. And man, we talk about athletic achievement a lot. While bodily training is of some value, the Greek word there, oligon, means little, little value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's about the closest thing you're going to find in the New Testament to commending athleticism. And that's really kind of about exercise. There are a couple analogies in 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Timothy 2 that have to do with athletes. But they're just analogies. And so, when you think about your value system, and you're thinking about introducing your friend Benjamin to someone, and, and really it's, what do you really value about Benjamin? And let's say your friend walks up, you say, this is Benjamin. He can bench press 325 pounds. Or, he's, he's the state record holder in the shot put. Or, he went to Clemson on a full ride in football. Those are fine details to tell about someone, but is that why you value them deeply? Because of their athletic or academic prowess? I could, the only academic achievements I could even think of in the New Testament would be uh, when Paul talks about his old life in Galatians 1, when he was advancing beyond the Pharisees in, in basically his expertise in Judaism. is Actually, he was not commending himself in his old life. And... In Matthew 23, verse 5, when Jesus condemns the Pharisees for broadening their phylacteries. Those are the only mentions of academic, academic achievement I see. It doesn't mean that those things aren't beautiful. The human mind is beautiful. The human body is beautiful. But I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that they're really not mentioned in the Bible and not really close to the, the heart, heart of God. So if that's your value system, I'm going to read you just a little story. This is from a book called You Are Special by Max Lucado. I read it to my kids last night. Um, if you're not necessarily a very advanced reader, you could read this. Um, it's fine. Or I'd recommend it anyway. I'm reading it to you right now. Uh, it's about a village of wooden people made by a, a, a craftsman, a woodworker named Eli. He's the God character. Okay? And this is what it says about the Wemmicks. These are the Wemmicks. Okay. All day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each Wemmick had a box of Golden Star stickers and a box of Gray Dot stickers. Up and down the streets all over the city, people spent their days sticking stars or dots on one another. The pretty ones, those with smooth wood and fine paint, always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, the Wemmicks gave dots. The talented ones got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. Some Wemmicks had stars all over them. 
Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good. It made them want to do something else and get another star. Others, though, could do little. They got dots. If our core value system, how we are actually impressed by people or how we value people, is based on their external achievements, their athletic achievements, their academic achievements, and that's the way we think of it, it will be the stars and dots, and it is not conducive to a culture of candor, nor is it anywhere close to the heart of God. I hear all the time, and I was in these shoes some years ago, but I hear all the time uh, someone will say, this is my daughter, or this is such and such's daughter. She is um, first chair in the orchestra, and she'll be going to North Carolina on a full scholarship. And in and of itself, I want to say, wow, that's really cool. I like music, and I'm glad, and I'm glad that she doesn't have to pay for college. Um, it's impressive. But there's this other voice in me that wants to say, so? So? Is she kind? Does she love people? I promise you that's closer to the heart of God than whether she can play the flute. And I love the flute. I'm just saying there's a value system here. Your child is not valuable according to their academic achievements. I'm so bent on raising, Annie's our oldest, and so since Annie's been born, we're saying, it'll be fine. We want Annie to enjoy being able to be an image bearer of God and enjoying partaking in talents of music and her mind and growing in knowledge. It's not like we're not going to teach her to read. We're working on it. It's just that we want her to love people. We want her to love people, not to be famous. And it's fine if she's famous. Famous people are impressive. I like it. I think God enjoys seeing his creatures do their things. It's glorifying to him. So that's level one. We'll move faster from here. Level two. And as Paul would say in, in 1 Corinthians 12, I will show you a still more excellent way. Okay, level two is a little closer to the heart of God, a little closer. One level deeper would be righteous deeds. Righteous deeds, deeds of charity, deeds of prayer, deeds of generosity, etc. So you say, this is Benjamin. He leads the prayer ministry. He gets people together in the morning. And uh, early in the morning, they, they meet at you know, Starbucks and they pray for their workplace. That's closer to the heart of God. It's not ultimately conducive to a culture of candor, but it's closer to the heart of God. In Philippians chapter 4, Verses 15 and 16, Paul says this. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So here he's commending their righteous deeds. Their righteous deeds. God has good works, good deeds that he has prepared beforehand that we would walk in. It says so in Ephesians 2.10. Or in Revelation 19. Um, basically, in some manuscripts, the white robes that the saints wear are the righteous deeds of the saints. So there's some value and closeness to God's heart's heart in terms of righteous deeds. But if it's the deepest value that you have of people, the deepest way you value people, it will not be conducive to a culture of candor. And so I will show you a still more excellent way. We go a level deeper. Crossing now from external demonstrations to internal realities. Now you introduce Benjamin. You say, this is Benjamin. He's a kind-hearted boy. He, or this is Benjamin. Maybe we'll take this. This is Benjamin. He's been married for 25 years. His wife has a pretty significant disability, and he's walked through it with her through thick and thin and, and been moving from there to say because he has a kind heart. The dear, kind heart. That's closer. Closer to the heart of God now 
moving deeper into. There are commendations of righteousness, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter. Everywhere in the Bible, you're going to find commendations of internal righteousness. It is much closer to the heart of God to say that your child is kind than to say that your child has a full scholarship. Both of, both of which are impressive and we ought to commend them because we're in the business of being impressed. But still, I will show you a more excellent way because I think we have to move closer into the heart of God if we want to get to a culture of candor. Level four, this is even deeper into the heart of God and directly connected, but I think starting to show how God is being more clearly glorified. Jesus Christ is being more clearly glorified than he was in level one. He can be in level one, but he, it's, it's getting clearer. And this is what I would say. When you introduce Benjamin, you say, this is Benjamin. He boasts in the cross. He boasts in the cross. He can't boast in himself, so he boasts in the cross. You say, now that is getting closer to the heart of God. God says very, very clearly in Jeremiah 9... Verses 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He delights in those things, and he delights when people boast in him, not when they boast in themselves. He delights when they, they lift him up, the New Covenant version of that is Galatians 6.14. It says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Far be it from me to boast in anything but the cross. So that's even deeper. Even deeper to boast in the cross. So now we're not talking about their academic exploits, their athletic exploits, their appearance, their talents, their business success. We're not even talking about their righteous deeds or their righteous, their godliness. We're talking about how they simply boast in Christ because they can't boast in themselves. That's deeper, but not yet to a place of full-on candor, full-on safety, full-on freedom. And so I will show you a still more excellent way. Now we go even deeper, and even now we're outside of the realm of even be, beginning to be impressive. All right, I'm gonna give you another quote from your Christianity and go deeper into the heart of God. Lewis says this, he says, I admit that this means loving people who have nothing lovable about them, all right? This level is now loving people just because they're people. But then has oneself anything lovable about it? You love it simply because it is yourself. God intends us to love all selves in the same way and for the same reason. But he has given us the sum ready worked out in our own case to show us how it works. We have then to go on and apply the rule to all the other selves. Perhaps it makes it easier if we remember that this is how he loves us. Not for any nice, attractive qualities we think we have, but just because we are the things called selves. God made us, he made us in his image, and he loves us because we are the things called selves. So now you say, this is Benjamin, he's a self. That would be weird to actually do. Uh, we don't do that when, when we introduce people, but it's, it's basically saying, this is Benjamin, I love him because I love him. He's a person. You're a person, I'm a person, he's a person. So there's no, there's no exploit for me to say, this is what makes him valuable. I just love him because he's a person. And I'll say this. There is a level deeper. You might be able to get to candor here. But I was reading this book, You Are Special. I referenced it about 17 minutes ago. And uh, Punchinello meets with Eli at the end of the book. It's a beautiful little book. And Eli says about the women. He said, what they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. 
All that matters is what I think, and I think you're pretty special. Punchinello laughed. Me special? Why? I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? And Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hands on those small wooden shoulders, and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. That's powerful. And that's moving toward a culture of candor. But I think still, I'll show you a slightly more, but really, really deep, more excellent way. The deepest heart of God. This is the last level. This is Matthew chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. All of the the progressive revelation of God to his people in created history was basically getting to this point as it would be revealed on the cross. But this is the point of God's message to his people right here. Matthew 9, verses 11 through 13. It says this, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the deepest heart of God. Where it's not just because you're a self, kind of in a vacuum. It's not because you have, it's, it's not because you have academic or athletic, athletic exploits. It's not because you have righteous deeds. It's not because you have righteousness. It's not even because you're a self. You're actually, he loves you despite you. Right? Because you're sick. He loves you. To show his deepest heart. And this is conducive to a culture of candor. This is, this is how. Candor, I mean, a, a culture of candor would mean you can step in somewhere and feel so safe that you can say who you are. What you feel. What you think. And if we had a, a, a community like this, and we're, all, we're, we're somewhat there and we're somewhat not. We had a community like this, then it could work. And this is what the introduction looks like, okay? I'm going to take myself on this one. You start at level one on the surface. You could, you could just do this. You could say, this is Matt. He went to Furman University on an athletic scholarship. He was, you know, the, the best all-around student at Wando High School back in the day. And someone would go, ooh, he's a valuable individual. Give him a sticker. Or if we're really expressing ourselves, thinking about how we would value people in the deep heart of God. We probably wouldn't say this because it would be awkward, but this is what I would want you, somebody in this congregation, to say about me, okay? Or to feel about me. Because you probably wouldn't say it. It'd be a very strange introduction, but listen. This is Matt. He has struggled to love his wife well for the last nine years. He has a propensity to listen poorly, and he is often a distracted father. And I mean it. He has always been a little bit of a doubter. And he struggles with something akin to clinical anxiety. He has been far less prayerful than he ought to have been in every single season of his life. His organizational, his organizational skills are atrocious. Really, really bad. But he's my brother. Me, a sinner. Him, a sinner. Me, forgiven. Him, forgiven. And he is safe with me. I feel really welcomed here. That's how I really, really want to be welcomed. And that's how I want to welcome you. Welcome in your weakness. You are welcome in your weakness. That 
is the summary statement of the Christian life. That is the summary of the Christian life. If you want a banner that is the gospel, you are welcome in your weakness. Or, I love you anyway. That's the gospel. I love you anyway. You're welcome in your weakness. Come here. The Lord says, I will smile upon you because my son has been your substitute. He ran to the cross to die for you. And now I smile on you in all of your junk. In your weakness, you come to me. You're welcome in your weakness. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you're sitting in here and you think, I don't have any weakness. I don't have to deal with that. What I would say is, if you think you don't have any weakness, you're probably not a Christian. And I'm not joking. If you don't think you're weak, you're probably not a Christian. The prerequisite to being a Christian is to be weak. Okay? So, I'm going to make this clear. If you think of coming to church or being in your community group or whatever it might be, more like uh, the Kentucky Derby, all right? So if you're familiar with the Kentucky Derby, you know what it's like. It's like a parade, the parade, all the horses and the hats and the whole thing. It's like, oh, look, it's a parade of culture and our presentability. And that's what church is. You will, A, not be operating in a culture of candor and safety and you'll have to hide and perform for the rest of your life. And B, you may not be a Christian. And I think we're, a lot of us are Christians and kind of think of church like Kentucky Derby, honestly. But it's really, really much more like a hospital, much more like a support group. I promise you it's more like that and not a display of our righteousness or our achievements when we come to church. And I want you to hear me, overvaluers of athletic achievement. I talk about sports way too much. I value athletic achievement way too much. Overvaluers, overvaluers of academic prowess. I'm way too big a stickler on grammar. Uh, you're welcome in your weakness too. You're welcome here too. I'm not condemning you. I'm saying you're welcome in your weakness, and that's a weakness to overvalue. And so this is a, a, a concluding statement. I'm going to talk about a few effects. The, the extent to which our value system is short of God's value system is the extent to which our culture will not be one of candor. It will not be one of safety, and it will not glorify Christ. So these are a few effects I just want to give you. If, if we can get to this place where we feel welcome in our weakness, the effects. Number one, freedom. You can breathe again. We all know the feeling. You know the feeling of having a chaotic morning, especially if you have kids. You have a chaotic moment at morning at the house or even in the minivan pulling into the parking lot. And it's like, hey, everybody get it together. We're walking to church. And then you get in there and it's like, hey, hush up, kid. Hey, how you doing? And like, that's the idea. We're doing great. But inside you're, you're, you're boiling. That's not freedom. We want to be able to breathe. We want the church to be the place where you can come to breathe. There should be nowhere else that you can come to breathe like church, like community group. So the first effect would be freedom. The second effect would be knowing each other in truth rather than in facades. Your life is deeper than your children's accomplishments. If someone comes to you and says, how are y'all doing? You say, we're doing great. Bill's first chair. Janine's just won medals for swim team. We're doing great. Your life is more than that. You are more than that. We're made for intimacy. True intimacy where someone knows you in all of your weakness. They can rejoice with you when you rejoice and they can mourn with you when you mourn. Knowing each other in truth 
real sins. I remember Tim Tebow a few years ago. I love Tim Tebow. I was discussing with my dad the other day, what celebrity athlete would you most like to be? And I'm like, eh, maybe Tebow. But Tebow, he had an article, he had an interview with, with Kenny Mayne some years ago in ESPN the magazine. And Kenny Mayne asked him, what are your vices? And Tim Tebow said, I bite my fingernails. And I'm sure Tebow would tell you other than this. I'm just using this as an example. But I thought, what? You bite your fingernails? You're made to be known in your weakness. Say what your real weakness is. You're made to be known and welcome there. That's what intimacy is. That's what the gospel is. So knowing each other in truth rather than facades. True intimacy. Number three, the effect would be true growth. You do not really grow unless you're really struggling together with people who really know who you are. Privacy is not a biblical value. People need to know you. There need to be at least a few people in your life that know every single thing about you. They need to know you. They need to know me. I know it hard. I feel it. I grew up here in America, in East Cooper, east of the Cooper, and at East Cooper. It's hard. It's hard to do, but that, we have to move that way. And then the last thing I would say, and this is drastically important, the effect of having a place where we feel welcome in our weakness would be having newcomers feel welcome here. Having newcomers feel welcome here. Would an alcoholic be embraced here? Would someone who looks a little more haggard be embraced here? Because when you look at them, you go, that's me. That's me. You're welcome in your weakness. You come to that person. You gravitate toward that person. Not because we put on, it's not, if people don't come to church and think, oh, this is a group of per- perfect people and what I've always wanted is just to be perfect. People don't know themselves as perfect, so when they come to church, they want a place where they can actually feel welcome in their weakness. I was talking to someone very dear to me the other day, and I was talking to her about our transition. And this is really hard, okay? You walk into church and someone says, how you doing? We just uprooted ourselves from 11 years in Minnesota. And my wife uprooted herself from 32 years in Minnesota. She's never lived more than 20 minutes from her parents and never lived more than 20 minutes outside of the Twin Cities, which is a pretty cool spot, except for seven months out of the year when it's negative 20. But other than that, it's beautiful. And, and when someone comes and says, how are y'all doing? What I want to say is, you got an hour? Or four? Because it's been tough. It's been really tough. To uproot, change is hard. We're not made to move homes, even when we know that we're not home yet. And my wife's been having a hard time, and I haven't been connecting with her super well over it. And I've been having my own hard time. I have some sort of weird existential anxiety that happens during times of transition. I just call it crazy head. And I've been having that. I don't even know how to describe it. I, you wouldn't, probably wouldn't be able to relate to it, but I want you to know it. And so this all gets me back to the initial examples. I was talking to someone dear to me, and I said, you know, I've been dealing with this anxiety in my mind where I'm kind of throwing everything up into this existential mess and, and I call it crazy head. I thought I called it with our staff in Minnesota and she goes, wait, you talk about it? And I was like, yeah. Jesus loves me. I don't care. Talk about it. I want people to know me. I want to know them. And she was absolutely intrigued. I want church to be that. I want her to think this is a place where I can come and I can say who I am and nobody's going to be shocked and walk away. They can say, I have news for you. You're welcome in your weakness, and you're welcome with me because I'm just like you. I'm just like you. You have to know your weakness to move that way. So I think that that process that we're all in is a long one. I think it's hard, and I think we're all welcome 
in our weakness, in the process, I think we have somewhat inverted value systems sometimes. I think we do value athletic achievement and academic achievement more than we ought. I think we value things other than, I think we value people because who they are sometimes more than despite who they are and just imputing righteousness to them the way that Jesus does to us. But we're welcome in our weakness. I want to be safe with you. I want you to be safe with me because both safe with Jesus. Come and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, it is such good news if you actually desired for me to continue to offer sacrifices, I would offer them constantly and it would never be enough. But you in your love have desired mercy and so you've sent your son to cover me, to be my substitute so that I can be welcome in my weakness and the people in this congregation can be welcome in theirs and newcomers can be welcome in theirs and your great gospel the gospel of your glorious grace will be lifted up and we will love nothing like we love the cross of your son because it's the only hope we have, not only for atonement, but also for safety and intimacy, freedom, candor. So would you make that happen here uh, in the days and weeks to come? We pray for your glory. Amen.